0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This week, a mystery in the Middle East. The Saudi government is accused of orchestrating the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who walked into a Saudi consulate and vanished.
1: There's something really... Terrible and disgusting about that if that were the case. So we're going to have to see. We're going to get to the bottom of it, and there will be severe punishment. We'll have more from
0: tonight's 60 Minutes interview. We'll ask a key senator on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Florida Republican Marco Rubio, what's next for the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia. He'll also give us an update on Florida's recovery from Hurricane Michael. Then, in a week of back-to-back to back presidential rallies, we'll check in on November's midterm elections with Chairman of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, Chris Van Hollen. And we'll take a look at who's ahead in the battle for control of the House with our CBS News Battleground Tracker. Plus, we'll talk to Nebraska Republican Senator Ben Sass about his new book. All of that and plenty of political analysis all ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. President Trump sat down on Thursday with 60 Minutes correspondent Leslie Stahl for an interview that will air tonight. With U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley announcing her departure last week, Stahl asked if the president has any more changes in store for his administration.
1: I have some people that I'm not thrilled with, and I have other people that I'm beyond thrilled with.
2: What about General
3: Mattis? Is he going to leave?
1: Well, I don't know. He hasn't told me that. I have a very good relationship with him. I had lunch with him two days ago. I have a very good relationship with him. It could be that he is. I think he's sort of a Democrat, if you want to know the truth. But General Mattis is a good guy. We get along very well. He may leave. I mean, at some point, everybody leaves. Everybody. People leave. That's Washington.
0: For more of that interview, tune in tonight to 60 Minutes. In their conversation, President Trump told Leslie Stahl that he plans severe punishment if Saudi Arabia is proven responsible for the death of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, though he's reluctant to cut off arms sales to the Saudi kingdom. A member of both the Senate Intelligence and Foreign Relations Committees joins us now from Miami, Florida Republican Marco Rubio. Welcome, Senator. I want to start with Hurricane Michael. Uh, Panama City other places absolutely devastated what can you tell us about the latest in Florida
4: well a few things obviously Panama I've gotten to Panama City and I've met with and seen the drone images there from the emergency operations center in Bay County uh, and it's deep devastation I've lived through a bunch of hurricanes myself going back to Andrew and and here in South Florida and what I saw in Panama City reminds me of Andrew I mean literally there was I think the whole power grid has been shredded but in all this conversation, and that's very important, you know, Mexico Beach is is wiped out and all of that, but, but I want everybody to remember one thing, and that is that there are these inland areas away from Mexico Beach, away from Panama City, uh, not on the coast. These are rural areas. A lot of them have older residents, poorer residents, people that could not evacuate even if they wanted to. Many living in manufactured housing and mobile homes, large mobile homes, but nonetheless mobile homes. Um, multi-acre properties off of dirt roads who are completely isolated at this very moment and i know crews are working hard to get to them but these are the first people these are the likeliest people to be forgotten and i think that is where the real challenges lie ahead in the next few days in terms of saving lives and and getting to people quickly
0: all right let me switch topics now to the case of jamal khashoggi Uh, You you said that if it turns out that Saudi Arabia had something to do with his uh, murder, that, quote, a complete revolt against our policies with Saudi Arabia would take place in Congress. Where do you think the state of that revolt is and what are the possible range of actions Congress could take?
4: Well, on the first point, I think everyone's waiting to find out exactly what happened. And frankly, this is the kind of case where we may never know exactly what happened. Um, all, I mean, there's a denial. But that said, there is r- news reports out there that there is some sort of audio video evidence of what occurred. If that were to emerge or any other facts were to emerge, or frankly, if questions here aren't answered, uh, there's no video of him leaving that facility. Uh, there's going to be a big problem. Um, I can just tell you that in Congress right now, there is no pro-Saudi element that's going to stick with our relationship with Saudi Arabia as it's currently structured. If in fact, they lured this man into this consulate, killed him, and then, you know, cut up his body and sent a, team to go into that country to kill them in the first place. That's just an unacceptable thing. We should never accept that from anyone in the world. It undermines our credibility and our moral authority around the planet to go after regimes like Putin's or Maduro in Venezuela or others. As far as the options that are concerned, people talk a lot about the arms sales. Our relationship with Saudi Arabia extends well beyond arms sales as well. And I would just say it's unfortunate because Saudi Arabia is an important part of our Middle Eastern strategy. They are a key leverage and hedge point against Iranian influence in the region, but that cannot supersede our commitment to human rights.
0: Let me ask you about the moral uh, question here. The president has uh, recently secured the release of Andrew Brunson from Turkey, uh, so working on the one hand on that account, but in this account, he said, uh, basically because there's 110 billion, as he claims, uh, arms purchases on, on order from Saudi Arabia, that you know that's that's essentially more important or has to be weighed here in the response give me your sense of of uh, your reaction to that that moral position the president took. Well,
4: I would Well, yeah i would have phrased that differently it's not about the money there are plenty of other countries that would want to buy arms from the u.s. and frankly that I, I would have phrased it very differently the important thing is that when you sell arms to a country so it's true what he said that they can buy from china russia or anybody else when you sell arms to saudi arabia it gives you leverage over them because they need replacement parts, they need the training. So it, it's the kind of, you know, you can't sanction a country by cutting them off of something if you never provided it in the first place. So it is true that arms sales gives us leverage.
0: You mentioned leverage. Were you surprised the president said up front that these arms sales uh, were something that he wanted to protect? In other words, aren't those, isn't that your leverage in your in your argument with the Saudis? And he sort of said right away those are too important to mess with
4: look if you don't sell arms they're going to buy them anyways and then in the future when you want to influence saudi behavior on another topic you're not going to have anything to threaten them with or anything to hold over their head but to me it isn't about the money i don't know if the president had just been briefed and that's kind of how he used it or expressed it but the bottom line is i mean there the money there's no way there's no there's no enough money in the world for us to buy back our credibility on human rights um, if, uh, if we do not move forward and, and take swift action on this, if in fact, w- even when it's, it's proven to be true.
0: Let me ask you a question about climate change in the wake of Hurricane Michael. Uh, Congressman uh, Carlos Curbelo, a Republican colleague of yours, believes that Republicans need to stop questioning the science behind climate change. He said that, it, that uh, America was saddling young Americans with an environmental debt that was as bad as the fiscal debt. What's your response to that?
4: Well, I respect Carlos tremendously. He's been a leader on that topic. My view is climate, sea level rise, these are measurable things. You can measure that. So there, it's not even a scientific debate. At some point, it's just a reality debate. You can measure whether sea levels are higher than they used to be, warmer than used to be, and the like. For, as a policymaker, the fundamental question is, what can we do about it? And if, in fact, humans are contributing to that, what public policy can we pursue that you can actually pass, does not destroy your economy, and can be effective?
0: But what the congressman and others are saying is is that uh, if you believe the science about human contribution, uh, that there are mitigation efforts you can take with greenhouse gases and that that's where there needs to be a little more focus from Republicans is on admitting that that climate change is caused by human activity and taking actions with whether it's coal plants or emissions from cars or methane gas uh, to actually get get it where the problem is occurring.
4: The increase has come from the developing world and in other places, but we're not a planet. We're a country. And the question becomes, I I don't think, in my mind anyway, the debate has been necessarily about, always about whether or not it's human contribution. It's about whether the public policies that are being advocated uh, would be effective in in light of the fact that in other places, uh, carbon emissions continue to grow. And by the way, technology is moving us in the direction that those who support those measures. Want us to go anyway.
0: So your view, then, Senator, is that humans are the chief contributor to climate change uh, in this recent period. You, that's my view. Is you. That's
4: what my view is. That, that's what a lot of scientists say. I think there are others that dispute what percentage of that is humans and not. I'm a policymaker. There's no way that I can ever debate with a scientist or people who spend their whole life on that. But do you what accept that What I can debate finding? is public policy. I can, I can accept this, and that is that we're going to have a debate about human contribution because scientists are saying that, and you know, a few are saying not, something different. But if we're going to have that debate about whether certain laws should be passed in order to alleviate what some scientists or a lot of scientists are saying is the cause of this, that has to be balanced with the public interest and other topics like the economy and the like.
0: Okay. Well, we're, we're out of time. We'll have to leave it there. Senator, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you and we turn now to maryland senator chris van Hollen, who among other things is in charge of his party's efforts to elect more democrats to the senate this cycle welcome senator i want to start where i left off with senator rubio you are uh on the environmental committee in the senate what did you make of the senator's remarks
5: well look uh, in the same week that we saw hurricane michael flatten the florida panhandle uh, we had this report from the world's leading climate scientists saying Climate change is hurting us today, and it's only getting worse. And at the same time, you have a Trump administration and a lot of Republicans who just want to put their head in the sands. They don't want to hear uh, the information. And we should start by not making things worse. This administration and the Republicans on, in Congress are actually rolling back uh, Auto emission standards, rolling back clean power plant rules. So let's stop making things worse, and then we definitely need to take action to make things better. Well, what is
0: Senator Rubio's point and the administration's point, which is once you come in with all these regulations, you choke off the economic recovery that, that America is in the middle of now.
5: Well, the reality is we've had auto emission standards in place for many, many years. And in fact, the auto industry has grown substantially. Uh, The reality is that there are uh, lots of economic opportunities when it comes to investing in clean energy and energy efficiency. And those are homegrown jobs. Wind, solar, these are homegrown jobs. These aren't jobs where you're importing oil uh, from Saudi Arabia, for example.
0: Let me switch to politics. A couple of weeks ago uh, in the Senate, people were writing about, hey, the Democrats have a chance. They're writing that less these days. What happened?
5: Well, what we've said from the beginning is this is a very tough political map uh, for Senate Democrats, probably the toughest we've seen in 60 years. Uh, The fact that people were talking about Democrats taking back a majority in the Senate uh, shows how strong we've been and what kind of momentum we've got. So I've said from day one, That we have a credible path uh, to a Democratic Senate majority. It is a narrow path, and there are so many very tight seats that this is all about. Uh, turnout at this point. Two things related to the Kavanaugh uh, nomination. First,
0: I want to get your sense. You talked to a number of your constituents who reached out to you during the confirmation process. um, And then you said they were their statements were reminders of, of how our society has let down survivors of sexual assault for decades. Have you heard from or what have you heard from constituents in the wake of the confirmation?
5: Well, I heard from more than 50 uh, of my constituents, uh, women who had experienced sexual assault, sexual trauma years ago and had never told their own parents at the time, in many cases had not told members of their families uh, today. And it was a powerful reminder of the progress we need to make in this country when it comes to sexual assault. So when you have the president of the United States at big rallies, Belittling Dr. Ford. He is belittling all those survivors of sexual assault. And I don't think people like what they see.
0: Majority Leader Mitch McConnell made the case that the behavior of Democrats with respect to this confirmation was a shot in the arm for Republicans, and that the president was essentially playing on that idea that Democrats overreached, and that's what's energized a lot of these Republican voters.
5: Well, I don't think Democrats overreached. Democrats wanted a thorough FBI investigation. In the end, it was Mitch McConnell, Senator McConnell, who really cut that short uh, and did not allow a full investigation. But what I've seen, actually, is that the Kavanaugh hearings have actually energized a lot of democrats especially younger voters and women voters yes they've energized some republicans it just goes to show that turnout is really important in these midterm elections
0: let me ask you about this this question of temperament because there belie- there seems to be an argument going on in the democratic uh, party about how to respond
5: to Donald Trump.
0: First of all, he he wants this to be a referendum on Donald Trump. Is that okay with Democrats this election?
5: Look, you know, the the president is energizing a lot of Democratic voters uh, to get out because he's been so polarizing and so uh, divisive. I would say in a lot of our red states, uh, what we have are senators who are standing up first and foremost for the people of their states. Uh, And people, even in red states, want someone who will hold the president accountable.
0: Let me ask you about a red state, Tennessee. I know of a voter there who who voted for Donald Trump, but was going to vote for Phil Bredesen, the the Democrat, because he had experience with Bredesen in the state. And then Hillary Clinton uh, came out and and was quoted this week saying, you cannot be civil with a political party that wants to destroy what you stand for, what you care about. This voter, of course, it's an example of one, and let's not go too far, John. But there were a lot of people who felt like, That was not helpful to Democrats, to have Hillary Clinton say that.
5: Look, what I think Hillary Clinton was saying is that Democrats are in a pitched battle uh, on very important issues uh, in our country, and we need to fight hard. Look, uh, nobody goes lower than Donald Trump. I mean, that's a bottomless pit. Uh, No one's competing with that. He gets up at his rallies. He says, go beat the crap out of them. He says, lock them up. I actually don't think voters, especially independent voters, like that. uh, But we are going to put up a tough fight. Phil Bredesen, two-term governor, nonpartisan, bipartisan, uh, he is doing very well in Tennessee.
0: But you say nobody's trying to compete with him, but, but Eric Holder, the former attorney general who was in charge of executing the laws, said when, and this is a play on, on Michelle Obama who said, when they go low, we go high. Eric Holder said, when they go low, we kick them. That's the new Democratic Party is all about. Look, that is directly look, competing with Donald Trump. Look,
5: no, no, Donald Donald Trump, when he goes, say, go beat the crap out of him at a rally, and then he says, I'm going to pick up your legal bill. I mean, look, the guy, the guy knows no bottom. Uh, but the reality is what Democrats are saying is that we are locked in a pitched political battle and we are going to engage fully. I mean, this is political trench warfare and we're going to uh, engage in that battle. And that's why Democrats in the Senate are doing a lot better than people expected us to do more than a year ago when Republicans said they were going to win a net of eight seats. All right, Senator Van Hollen, 23
0: days. Thank you so much for being Good here. to be here. And we'll be right back.
1: Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the Sleep Number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a Sleep Number bed. Sleep Number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Find your competitive edge with proven, quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C A D E N C E. Sleepnumber.
0: And we're back with Nebraska Republican Senator Ben Sass. He's the author of a new book, Them: Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal. Welcome, Senator. Thanks. So,
6: um, you say politics isn't about politics. It's not. But you're a politician. It's one of my callings. I'm also a dad and a neighbor and a Husker football addict. So
3: <laughs>
0: why, do, why is it not about politics? Because when people think of what's tearing this country
6: apart, politics is often the culprit. There's a lot that's going on that's acute in the last two years, but I think what we're really struggling with is decades in the coming. We're living through a digital revolution, which is undermining place. I think the biggest problem in America right now is loneliness. Uh, And the good news is it's fixable, but it requires friendship. It requires more uh, attention to place and family and shared vocation and work and neighborhood and worshiping communities.
0: Help people understand what you mean by (coughs) place. Yeah.
6: So, you know, where you live is where you actually love. And communities of love are the center of what really keeps people happy. There's a ton of literature now that shows we're the richest people in the history of humanity, and yet we're some of the most dissatisfied people in the history of humanity. How do you make sense of that? And it didn't start two years ago. It starts because the digital revolution is really undermining that sense of local community and neighborhood. Because we're all just (coughs) looking into our phones and we're by ourselves and then suddenly the sun's gone down and the day's over. That's a huge part of it. It turns out if you go from 200 to 500 social media friends or 500 to 1,000, you don't get happier. But if you know the neighbor who lives two doors away from you, statistically, you're more likely to be happy. We need to attend to those kind of things. It's a big deal. I want to get to (coughs) solutions in a
0: minute, but let's stick with the diagnosis for a moment. You are, in fact, able to make this case because you're a politician. And so what I want to ask you about is the power of example in politics. Um, there is no more famous person probably in America than the president. True. He, he, how is it not about <clears throat> politics, if you have been very critical of this president, saying he is driving some of these divisions? If these divisions, wouldn't it be very powerful if somebody in a public role like the president or senators behaved and modeled the behavior you're talking about in this book that you should see at church or at the Little League ball field?
6: Sure, I, I think that's true. I mean, the president and I wrestle on a whole bunch of issues. I, there are things we agree on, things we disagree on. But I don't think most of what Americans are wrestling with is a problem that's two years old. I think we've had a halving of friendship in America the last 27 years. It's it's a stunning thing. You know, nomadic tribes, uh, agrarian history, industrial economics, people have always known their neighbors and known their coworkers. Decreasingly, we don't know those things. We've gone from three and a half friends per American 27 years ago to about 1.8 friends today. President Trump can't fix this. He didn't cause this. Politics can't fix this. Politics didn't cause this. But it's true that our political tribalism is filling that vacuum, that loneliness that's coming from all these other institutions. We have a decline of the nuclear family structure a lot the last 25 years. And politics is a place people look to try to find meaning in the absence of these other communities that actually can make you happy.
0: That's right. That's why I wondered if that's where people are going. People are addicted to what they're seeing in the news. And we all experience that, those of us who report or live in this world, wouldn't it be if you had examples, for example, after this Kavanaugh fight, if a Democrat had said, you know, uh, I understand what my (laughs) Republican colleague was, how passionate they got in defense of this person who was wrongly accused, or if a Republican had said instead of calling them evil, had taught people through the power of their example since everybody's watching anyway, taught people through the power of their example of what it looks like to forgive the other side. We just don't see that.
6: Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, the, the Senate should be an institution of 100 people who get sent from their communities where they really are from and want to return to, and they go and have to build relationships and build a temporary community in the Senate of people who actually listen to one another. We don't do that very much right now because cable TV news has swallowed the Senate whole. Right now, we live the sort of frenzied media circus. That's not to beat up on the media. Uh, that's to beat up on the Senate as a place that people are more thinking about those distant tribes and the things we're screaming at each other against rather than the things we should be for together. You should be for the place where you're from, the neighborhood in the city or the small town farming community where I'm from. But when you're temporarily thrown together in a new community, the Senate should be a place that actually does some empathy. And we're pretty crappy at that right now. So let's focus a little bit on the solutions. People know
0: that, that we are at this pitched moment. So what do we do to fix it?
6: Well, one of the things we have to do is rediscover plural vocations, right? Work is statistically one of the most significant drivers of whether or not people are happy. And part of that's because we, we like to do stuff together. We like to have shared projects. I was born in the 1970s. Average duration at a firm was two and a half decades for a primary breadwinner. Average duration at a firm today for an American is 4.2 years and getting shorter. So what does that mean? Everybody knows what looking for work looks like, but what does that mean in terms of
0: policy change, even at the very local level?
6: Yeah, so I think most of this is going to be about recognizing that when you're 35 and 40 and 45 and 50, you're going to get disintermediated out of not just your job, but probably your firm and your industry. We've never prepared to become a people that are lifelong learners. That has huge policy implications. I don't think politics are the main thing. I don't think they're the first thing. But obviously, rethinking job retraining for the age of disruption. McKinsey, a company that I used to work for, says that 50% 50% of Americans are gonna be primarily freelancers in three years. We're not at all prepared for that. But it has huge downstream implications for shared work together.
0: But, and this is where politics gets into it too, because you have politicians saying, your job's not going away, I'm gonna protect it. You're not gonna to have to relearn. And and so that comes back, brings me back to politics again, sending the wrong messages from what you want yeah, to Yeah, that's
6: just not true, right? So, so much of what we fight about in Washington is right versus left, and a lot more of our policy should be past versus future. There aren't gonna be lifelong jobs anymore, and we shouldn't be lying to the American people about it. We should be thinking about what does it look like to help people get back to work, back to meaningful employment, back to shared labor with their neighbors when they're 35 and 40 and 45. We can't say, I politician, I'm going to protect your jobs forever because it's not true.
0: So we have about 30 seconds. What can I do? I'm at home watching this. What can I do to just break out of this cycle?
6: One of the things is we're going to have to develop habits for the technological age that get back to an awareness of embodied flesh and blood neighbors actually matter a lot. There's a whole bunch of tech addictions we all have to our smartphones. We know it's a problem when it's our kids. I have 14 and 17-year-old daughters. But it turns out we, the adults, are also addicted to technology that helps us flee the place where we're actually called to live and love our neighbor.
0: All right, Senator Sass, thank you so much for being here. Thanks People for having me.
6: Break, from, break away from that technology, but stay with us until
0: the show's over. Tomorrow night, the CBS Evening News with Jeff Glor will be coming to you from the battleground state of Missouri, and we'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation. Stay with us.
1: What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time, and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 World's Most Ethical Companies by the Ethisphere Institute the freedom to go after whatever is next for you, that's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love or visit www.pacificlife.com.
0: Welcome back to Face the Nation. The midterm elections are less than a month away. So we'd like to welcome CBS News Elections and Surveys Director Anthony Salvanto to share some new insights from our battleground tracker polling. All right, Anthony, let's start with the top big insight. What's going to happen to the House?
7: Well, at the moment, we've got the House with the Democrats getting over the 218 seats that they would need to take it. If the election were today, right now we've got them at 226 seats in our model. That number has been creeping up slowly over the course of the summer, as long as we've been doing these battleground trackers. But it is still very heavily dependent on at least two things for the Democrats. And I just I can't emphasize this enough. It's dependent on turnout among people who don't typically vote, in midterms and it's dependent on a few meaningful crossover voters coming from having voted for Donald Trump to voting democrat now.
0: Okay. So what just to remind people you're not saying that it is chiseled in stone that Democrats will take will take the house. You're saying right now as trends go forward, it looks like the Democrats have a shot. Give me, Run me through those two scenarios and how they play out.
7: Yeah, what we did with this was, because we want to emphasize for people that we're defining a range of possibilities here, especially still weeks out, we actually took the model and we re-ran it with these scenarios. One, how many seats could the Democrats conceivably get if everything breaks their way, if all of these folks really do show up, if all of these groups that they're dependent on, these younger voters, these women voters, all do stay the way they are in the polling. And
0: that top, the first group you're talking about are people who don't usually vote in midterm elections. That's so right. This is the scenario is actually they do this time.
7: Actu- actually, exactly they do. They make good on what they're telling us, on what most of them are telling us in the polling. Now, if we put that in the model, it goes as high as 235 seats. So they get a little bump from that. However... Let's suppose they don't show up, and that's a reasonable assumption because they haven't done this before. And, frankly, sometimes people do overreport this turnout propensity in the polling, right? So if they don't show up, these are folks who maybe they voted in a presidential, but they didn't typically vote in the last midterms in 2010 and 2014. If they don't show up, then the Democrats don't make it. They don't get the 218 that they need, and the Republicans hold the House. So if they don't get that, and the Democrats don't get quite as many of those crossover voters, those crossover voters come back home a little bit to the Republican Party. Then the Reps still have a chance to hold. So it.
0: these people you're talking about are the ones who would like to tell a pollster they're going to vote. They feel it's their civic duty, but election day comes around. They're busy. They got a couple of jobs, whatever. They're not making it. So. These are the people who are the key to what you've identified which is maybe that's the key to whether the, rep- the Democrats take the house or not.
7: Yeah, and they mean it when they say it now. Yeah. But right, life sometimes gets in the, way, in the way. You also
0: measure this question of enthusiasm, but you have a more subtle t- crack at it. What did you find about enthusiasm?
7: Well, enthusiasm is one of those factors that's mixed into what you just described. People who really mean to vote, but maybe something gets in the way. Maybe enthusiasm helps you get over that hurdle, but really I want to sh- say that enthusiasm is not the same thing as voting. What you want to look at is that intent to vote. Look, you can only push that lever so hard. You can push it enthusiastically, or you can just kind of give it a click. It's still one vote. Um, But what you want to look at is whether that enthusiasm then drives people across that finish line, actually gets them there.
0: So your point is people can get more enthusiastic, so they're snapping the lever off when they pull it, but it doesn't mean that that an additional person is going to vote necessarily. Is there a way enthusiasm splits by party?
7: Yeah. um, The Republicans have become more enthusiastic over the last couple of weeks. That's important for them, right? They want to get that... Base turnout and we think that helps move that but at the same time the vote intention of both parties is up and it is even it is even between democrats and republicans saying that they're showing up so they're
0: going to show up at the polls both parties are saying as much as that represent a, a change more for the republicans or the democrats recently
7: well the enthusiasm is up but the democrats and republicans are equally up on intention of okay. turning out
0: um, now let 's go to the to uh, the the groups within these the polling um, what are we, What are you learning and seeing in, about women and, the, and, and men and the so called gender gap?
7: right Well, the gender gap is up, and that means there 's an increasing difference between how women are voting in this case more heavily for the Democrats and how men are voting in this case more heavily for the Republicans. So we looked at why this is and one of the reasons is that women are among this group that have, are heavily cross-pressured this year. They say that they think the economy is doing well. Normally that would advantage the party in power, the Republicans. They voted in these districts. They voted for Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton in about even measures. But this year they also say that they're unsatisfied with the direction of the country, and they're breaking Democratic for that reason. They also tell us that they feel like the Republican Party works Against the interests of women and more for the interests of men. So on a personal level, as a as a group identifier, group affiliation, you see them breaking more heavily democratic right now.
0: What did we, if anything, learn about what the hearings of Justice Kavanaugh did to affect either women, men enthusiasm. There were a lot of claims made. What what does the data show?
7: It inserted a lot of anger. We see anger up on both sides. We see Republicans saying they're increasingly angry about the prospect of the Democrats winning. Democrats saying they're increasingly angry about the prospect of the Republicans winning. Now, anger does also correlate with intention to turn out. And you feel more passionate about something, you're more likely to go and do it. So that's one determinant of turnout for certain. Did it change anybody's mind, though? No, it does not appear like it changed anybody's mind. It appeared to just cement what people already thought going in.
0: Now, we know that the news cycle changes, you know, multiple times a day. What is your expectation? Do you have anything in the data that tells us anything about whether that anger stays and sticks and takes people all the way to Election Day or is it an acute momentary thing happening now?
7: Well, one factor you want to watch is the president. You know, we are on pace now for the president to be a factor in people's voting at really what would be historic levels. So typically, a majority, maybe a slight majority of people who vote in midterms say that the president's a factor in their vote, either for or against. But this year, we've got many more voters saying that they feel like the president is a factor, either for or against. In fact, it's relatively split. But there's no question that he is on the ballot, so to speak, or at least in the minds of voters when they're going to the polls this year.
0: He says he wants it to be a referendum on him, and it turns out the voters
7: are seeing it. Yeah, very much so. Like I said, at, at historic levels at this point. All right. Anthony Salvanto,
0: thank you so much for breaking it all down for us. We'll be seeing a lot of you in the next 20 days. Indeed. <laughs> thanks. thanks, John. And we'll be right back.
8: I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use, which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom.
0: For some political analysis, we'd now like to welcome our panel. Susan Page is the Washington Bureau Chief of USA Today. Jonah Goldberg is a senior editor of the National Review. And Susan Glasser writes about the presidency and foreign policy for The New Yorker. Susan Glasser, I want to start with you on the question of Jamal Khashoggi. Um, Put all the pieces in in order for us of of this issue, why it's a challenge for the White House, uh, and what you expect
9: next. Well, first of all, look, this is a story I think that really has captured uh, the attention of Washington and many capitals around the world because it seems to so directly uh, implicate not just uh, this horrific question of uh, this Saudi dissident journalist uh, who's in self-imposed exile here in the United States, writing a column for the Washington Post. He's broken with the leadership of Saudi Arabia, and it appears to be a very personal feud with the, the young crown prince, uh, Mohammed bin Salman but that's also why it's a Washington story. President Trump and in particular his son-in-law Jared Kushner have made the relationship extremely personal with Saudi Arabia. They've doubled down on America's traditional alliance with the Saudis. Jared Kushner has enforced a personal relationship with MBS as he's known, uh, overriding concerns of many here uh, that in fact he was uh, not so much a liberal reformer as someone consolidating power and cracking down on dissidents. So you see- this case kind of bringing all those concerns together. And there's a real question, of course, of the judgment of the Trump administration Mm. and also the politics.
0: Right. And Susan, speaking of the politics, the president came right out and said, this is about jobs potentially. He says $110 billion in orders from the Saudi Arabia, which is, uh, that's orders to come, not already booked, but, um, uh, and that that's really what he said. I wouldn't want to do anything that would endanger that.
2: And, but other policymakers may have other views on whether what price uh, are you willing to uh, put on the life of a, a U.S. resident um, who is a dissident journalist who is lured to his uh, his country's embassy and then dismembered? We believe, uh, and with the idea that there may be recordings of this, I think escalates this. It's been no surprise to anybody in Washington that Saudi Arabia has a very questionable record when it comes to human rights. But is this a bridge too far when it comes to these contracts? And you saw the discomfort in your interview with Marco Rubio with the way the president had expressed this concern as though these contracts over would necessarily override whatever you might want to do uh, to sanction Saudi Arabia if this is, indeed is what happened.
0: Jonah, do you, where do you think this fits in? Th- America first, because the president, in a sense, is saying something that maybe previous presidents wouldn't have said it out loud, Mm -hmm. but they would put America's interests, multifaceted interests. We should also mention that Saudi Arabia is a great counterweight to Iran for the United States. And maybe he's just saying out loud what previous presidents just wouldn't have said out loud. But there is there are American jobs to be uh, thought about here and that this is perfectly in keeping with President Trump's kind of vision of foreign policy.
3: I think it is perfectly in keeping. And You know, when he says, I don't want to jeopardize this $110 billion in orders, I wish someone would ask him, OK, so how many journalists does Saudi Arabia get to kill before you, it might jeopardize it, right? I mean, this is a problem with the rhetoric. And it's also a problem with the relationship. It, it makes a lot of sense to me, or at least it's perfectly defensible, to have a better relationship with Saudi Arabia, to work this out as a counterweight to Iran. All of those things are fine or at least defensible. But it has to be, when you get into this situation it is clear that no one communicated to Saudi Arabia that if we're going to go down this path, you cannot embarrass us or put us in a situation like this. And so now we're at this stage where there are no really very good options. Um, uh, The White House is in a bind on this. And it's because they went down this cul-de-sac to begin with without a proper line of communication. Someone led the Saudi Arabian government to believe that they could get away with this, that this wouldn't be a problem. And that's why it's a mess now.
0: And Susan, maybe some people are arguing what led the Saudis to believe this is not a lot of uh, scolding on what is happening in Yemen, um, and that there were, there's a pattern here of basically saying either explicitly or implicitly, Uh, We're not going to mess with your sovereignty.
9: Absolutely. I think this is going to emerge as a case study of why words do matter in the Trump presidency. And uh, Jonah's point is a very important one. What have we seen that's different from President Trump from his predecessors, Democrat and Republican? I would say that uh, it's so much more of a transactional view of uh, America's position in the world. Uh, and that is something that's that's quite different. Certainly you've had criticism of even Barack Obama for not emphasizing human rights as much as others. But you've never had a president before who called journalists the enemy of the people. Uh, now, if you are the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, do you think you might factor that into your calculation about what you could do with this particular dissident journalist when you have your good friend and ally, the president say that journalists are enemies of the people? I think it's it 's a really interesting example, also you know values no longer figures in uh, American foreign policy in the way that it has in the past.
0: Although uh, the president uh, was visited yesterday by Pastor uh, Andrew Brunson, who was uh, released from Turkey based on pressure the the president had put. And so the president's supporters are rightly pointing out that were it not for the president, he'd still be in jail.
2: And the president uh, notes correctly that he has gotten several people uh, who had been held uh, in North Korea and elsewhere. Um, and, and got them returned to the United States, and that's, and that's a fair point. Although the bizarre element of that uh, moment, I thought, was not the prayer, because understandably the pastor would say a prayer of gratitude of being back, but the president then asking him, let me ask you, did you vote for me in 2016, when, of course, he was imprisoned in Turkey. Yeah.
9: Well, and it's again your supporters. Uh, you know the thing is, is not that uh, you know human rights has become another tool in the partisan arsenal. Uh, I think is is the big transition there. That's a great example of it. Right,
0: general. Yeah. Let me uh, switch topics here to a departure from the administration. UN Secretary Nikki Haley is leaving. Um, was extraordinary this week to see an event at the White House where she said, I've had a great uh, time, and it was all quite orderly. Mm-hmm. Um, we have not seen all departures from the administration happen in an orderly fashion. What do you what do you make of it?
3: Yeah, it's great. She wasn't left on a tarmac, for example. <laughs> uh, yeah, full disclosure, my wife works for, for Nikki Haley, and um, so I, I'm conflicted and biased about this. But I, I think you can make a persuasive case that she's arguably... Um, First of all, she's probably the most popular politician in America right now when you think about it. If you look at her poll ratings in, in, among Democrats and independents, also among pro-Trump conservatives and anti-Trump conservatives. She's kind of a unifying figure. Um, and I think her timing in all of this was uh, you know, either lucky or brilliant. Um, to No other person who has worked for the Trump administration has, has seen their reputation enhanced in the process. Um, and she's getting out uh, while the getting is good by doing it this way. It won't look like she's abandoning a sinking ship um, if the midterms go south on the Republicans. And uh, I'm looking forward to find out what happens with her next. <laughs> yeah,
0: Susan Page. <laughs> It, what Jonas says is is uh, amazing when you think about where Nikki Haley once was in 2016, giving the Republican response to the Democratic president. She talked about angry voices within the Republican Party, which nobody mistook for anything but a shot at Donald Trump. Yet then she goes into the cabinet and now is or goes into the administration and is now leaving, managed uh, pretty nicely. Does this uh, give me your thoughts on that? And then also. Uh, Well, let's just give me your thoughts on that. You
2: know, we obsess about the 2020 Democratic presidential lineup. But if you want to look a little farther down the road for Republicans, I think you'd have to include Nikki Haley on that list, which is a a remarkable thing. For a minority woman to win election as governor in South Carolina and then win reelection and then uh, criticize President Trump as a candidate and then turn around and become one of his most prominent spokespersons uh, on foreign policy is shows a remarkable Nimbleness and political skill. And, and she emerges from this, in, as you say, enhanced. And can you think of another example of someone who has come into the administration, served the president, mm-hmm. had the president praise her, and emerge without criticism, really, even from those and just Very
3: quickly to pick up on the point that uh, Sue made earlier, she was the one figure in the administration who actually did talk about values and human rights around the world and got away with it in a way that someone else in the administration might not have.
0: What does that mean then, Susan Glasser, for? The foreign policy, does this tell us anything about the current makeup of the foreign policy team, and then what does it mean going forward?
9: Well, just a quick thing. I I do think nimble is a very charitable word, uh, you know, for somebody who has really, Donald Trump hasn't changed, but uh, many of his critics have changed in how they approach and frame him. She did leave the Oval Office saying that Jared Kushner was a hidden genius uh, (laughs) in the administration the same week that this this Saudi um, controversy has arisen. And this goes to the point of, you know, what is the administration's foreign policy? Increasingly these days, I think we see a situation where uh, it's less and less true that there's a Trump administration foreign policy and a Trump foreign policy. Since uh, President Trump got rid of Rex Tillerson, uh, his first Secretary of State, got rid of H.R. McMaster and replaced them with Mike Pompeo and John Bolton, uh, both of them come out of certainly much more of a classic, very conservative, very hardline Republican foreign policy establishment. They differ on their own policy positions from President Trump but he's made it very clear that he doesn't want to have any more public disagreements uh, and it appears that they have not challenge him as much uh, even privately as uh, their predecessors did. Nikki Haley is someone who did speak up repeatedly uh, at various points in time uh, where she disagreed on Russia, for example, and on other aspects of foreign policy. So I think you're going to see uh, a more Trumpian approach Mm. to the United Nations. That's also John Bolton, his Mm. very hawkish national security advisor, has made an entire career of UN bashing. They're already talking about downgrading the United Nations portfolio with with absence of Nikki Haley is probably no longer going to be a cabinet-level position.
0: Right, so a consolidation there. Um, let's switch to politics. Uh, Susan Page, uh, the USA Today, ran an op-ed from the president on the question of health care this week. That was a uh, uh, well. Take it from there.
2: Um, so, this was the editorial page, ran an op ed, right. not the news side. Um, I thought it was good that we gave the president a platform. These are the arguments he's making in, in rallies and as he uh, campaigns for candidates in the midterms. Um, there was a big furor because it was not a fact che- There wasn't a fact check article that went with it and provided context and information for readers. I thought that was a legitimate criticism. I'm glad that we eventually posted a fact check about it. Um, it does show how much uh, how um, inflammatory President Trump is for both sides uh, and how much he defines this midterm election uh, that we're going to see in just three weeks.
0: Jonah, in the old days, if a president had written an op-ed that could have been fact-checked, uh, somebody would have maybe lost a job or there would have been mm. embarrassment. There is a theory out there now that in this polarized world we're in that you, in fact, want to insert some things to get fact-checked, so you'll get another news cycle and that the people you're trying to rile up are going to believe you no matter if there's a mountain of fact-checking. And so the second round, in which there is fact-checking, actually ends up distributing the message through to a larger audience and that that's then good for you. Do you see that in play here?
3: Uh, it might well be. I actually wrote a column about this on uh, Hillary Clinton coming in very late in the early Kavanaugh controversy about getting something completely wrong that Kavanaugh allegedly said about birth control. Um, And it was very strange that she would jump in after it had already been debunked by all the fact checkers. And I made exactly this argument is that we sort of live in the republic of trolling now. And everybody, it benefits you more to be the subject, in a world of negative polarization, to be attacked by your enemies um, is a benefit in and of itself, even if the attack is legitimate. And I think. It's a sort of spreading model of Trumpism that is infecting a lot of our politics and our media.
0: And yet, Susan Glasser, we have in our Battleground Tracker poll, when people are asked what issue will affect your, your vote, what the, is the most important issue to you in your vote in 2018, health care comes in number one ahead of the economy and ahead of the... So at 70%, economy 67%, and the Supreme Court at 57%. So... Um, the president is at least talking about an issue that people really seem to care about
9: well that's right it's interesting that he started to to do so uh, as you know his major health care initiative failed, essentially, which was the repeal of uh, Obamacare, which was something that President Trump, as well as Republican Party, for years campaigned upon. It failed by a single vote. Trump is still, uh, interestingly, bashing the late Senator John McCain for his decisive vote on that. He did that in an interview with Fox this week, uh, you know, even because he understands that, you know, they haven't really come up with a convincing answer to it. Interestingly, tax cuts doesn't figure on that list. Uh, I did... The call it crazy or what you want uh, effort of binge watching uh, uh, all six hours and 51 minutes of President Trump's uh, six rallies so far. There was another one last night, uh, for my column in the New Yorker this week. So that's almost seven hours of Trump. Interestingly, tax cuts, which was going to be the centerpiece of Republican campaigns generally came in at about the 51 minute mark, uh, to his, uh, uh rallies. These are not Saving about- the best for last. Well, yeah. that's right, but, but <laughs> I think, you know, you mentioned the issues that, that, uh, are top of the list, healthcare, the economy, it's not really an issues uh, campaign if you listen to President Trump. And frankly, if you even listen to voters in your poll, the, the issue is President Trump. And more than any midterm election that I can remember, uh, this genuinely, for both Republicans and Democrats, is a, a, a vote about President Trump, it seems to me.
2: You know, that's in part by President Trump's design. Yes. You know, when President Obama was very unpopular at midterm, he started to stay out of the news. When President George W. Bush was unpopular at midterm, he tried to stay away President Trump is as unpopular as they were, and he is pushing himself out there in a way we've never seen a president for a midterm election. For a president who's been four or five days a week doing rallies around the country, it makes it impossible for this election not to be about him.
4: Uh,
3: Just very quickly, I thought one of the interesting data points was that Fox News stopped carrying all of his rallies all the way through, and I'm a Fox News contributor, but it was interesting.
0: All right, we're going to have to end it there, and we didn't talk about Kanye West. (laughs) (laughs) That's it for us today. Thanks for watching, and we'll be back in two weeks. Face the Nation, I'm John Dickerson. I'll see you tomorrow and all this week on CBS This Morning. Today's guests were Florida Republican Senator Marco Rubio, Maryland Democratic Senator Chris Van Hollen, and Nebraska Republican Senator Ben Sass. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation
6: and CBS if you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash
2: survey.